Hi, this is Lori Palminteri. You're listening to Awakened Nation with Brad Salas. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Long time no see. I know. Uh, for those of you who don't know, those of you listening in or watching on video, uh, Lori and I met at a Barnes and Noble cafe, <laughs> sucking down Starbucks coffee, uh, expensive coffee and writing. Mm -hmm. And we wound up on either side of the same pillar uh, and the same plug. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do you do? And she's like, well, I'm a comedian and I write. And uh, <laughs> uh, over that, I think it was over a couple of years, we found out we all know the same people. Uh, and I thought that was just hilarious. So we're going to take a deep dive into the comedy world. Uh, women in comedy and uh, your career. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I was reading on your blog, uh, your big influence. And I want to I start at the beginning. What really got you started doing comedy? Because in your bio, you basically say you like the adventure and the thrill of jumping off a cliff <laughs> and then landing in that cool, cold water. And then all of a sudden, you get to college and, and what happened? You just said, screw, screw it. I don't want to get a, a STEM degree. I want to get a, you know, I, I want to get, uh, I want to be a comedian. Uh, is that what happened? Um, not quite. Um, I was, well, I always wanted to write since I was very little. I was loved writing um, and I seemed to have a knack for it. You know, I was praised by a lot of my teachers and my family alike for writing stories. Um, and I was a TV junkie too, also from a young age and comedy also. Com my, my whole family, you know, we had one TV growing up. So um, like at nighttime, it was either go to bed or watch what mom and dad are watching. Right. And they watched a lot of Seinfeld and our sitcoms, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, along with like X-Files and Star Trek. Um, <laughs> so I was just like doomed to become a nerd, you know? Um, and, uh, I originally was going to major in journalism because I come from a very blue collar family mm -hmm. and they're all very kind of like practical thinkers. Um, a lot of creative people, but the creative people in my family went into teaching. Like we have music teachers, art teachers, um, in the family. Um, I didn't want to teach though. I was like, I don't, it, people kept trying to push me into being an English teacher for a long time. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't know why everybody's suggesting yeah. this to me. Um, so I decided I was going to major in journalism because that seemed like the most practical way to make money as a writer. Mm -hmm. And in college, I initially was majoring in journalism. I was editor of uh, a school paper and I, I really hated it. I was like, I hate this. Like there's no creativity towards it. Like I don't, I don't, anytime like my stuff was edited, it took out all the things that I liked about my, my essays or my articles, which was essentially my snarky sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, so it's more technical than this. And I was like, ah, I was like, I don't really want to do this. And, um, you know, it was like, okay, let's try to, you know, reactualize what I want to do. And it's like, all right, in the most ideal world, of Lori Palminteri, what would you want to be? And it was like, e I didn't even have to think about it. I was like a sitcom writer. That's what I yeah. always wanted to do. That's what I always wanted to be. I want to write sitcoms. So then it was like, all right, well, how do people become sitcom writers? So like, I was just Googling on the internet or whatever, figuring it out. And it seemed like most sitcom writers were stand-ups or were still stand-ups and living, growing up on Long Island and um, having access to the city was like, oh, well, I live in right next to the comedy mecca of the entire world. Yeah. Um, but I was terrified at the thought of doing stand-up because I was a very introverted person and shy kid. Um, so the thought of going on stage and telling jokes was like, you know, completely terrifying to me. But also coming from this being an adrenaline junkie and a surfer and like always kind of pushing the fear limit of myself of being like, no, you don't not do something because you're afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a bullshit excuse. Um, so then it was like kind of a dare to myself. It was like, well, you have to try this or you're going to spend the rest of your life 
regretting it um, and being yeah. like, I tried this. Um, so I said, you know, fuck it. I'll try doing some standup. And um, that's what I did. And then, as you know, because you've done standup, it, it's it's a drug in itself. It's super addicting. Mm -hmm. And I kind of fell in love with it and that world. Um, but the goal always was, you know, the writing jobs. That, that was always the goal. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of um, what led me down this very strange path that I have uh, <laughs> been on for over a decade now, like over a third of my life, because I started in college when I was 20. Um, so that's also like kind of crazy to think about um, at this point. Getting a little older and a little wiser, right? Yes. Um, not quite, not quite young anymore, but. Uh... <laughs> you're at that in between, Mark. You're You're yeah. halfway. Uh, you know, this, this is the, the most amazing part about this, listening to your story. Um, it sounds like you're raised like a boomer, <laughs> number one, yes. you know, with one TV and you're watching Seinfeld. Uh, but the second thing is a lot of people go through life like this. They, they do have creativity, but they, they, they stamp it down, they suppress it and get a job. And, you know, I found out years later, you know, I, I always had art talent. So I was painting and drawing and wound up going to college for it and becoming a graphic designer. I found out when I think I was in junior high and high school that my dad could draw. Wow. And I, th I thought, what in the hell did you do with your life? You know, I mean, he was a doctor of chiropractic medicine and he owned, <laughs> he owned an accounting firm. But at the same time, I'm like, dad, why, why aren't you drawing more? And, and I feel like you were stuck in that same sort of world. You're looking around, you see all these adults who maybe suppressed what they really wanted to do in life. Would, would you say that's true? Yes, absolutely. Um, and also a big factor for me was um, I started when I was a teenager experiencing my first bouts of depression, which um, would later become really kind of a big issue for me. And I had to you know, go to therapy and go on meds. And it also kind of ran in the family, which I found out later that, um, you know, this manic depression, this severe depression disorder in the family. And I also worked in a nursing, probably when I met you, I was probably still working in the nursing home. Oh yeah. Um, so I worked in a nursing home as a dietary aide for about four years uh, in college and into out of college for a little while. Um, and that also was a really eye opening because you're just like, it's so depressing. I was, I, it's, it was like terrible in a way. I'm so happy that I worked there because it gave me some like life experience or there's these really like lessons that I would not have gotten otherwise. But then also I worked four years was too long. I probably should have quit sooner. Cause I just, it was such a bummer, you know, it's a real bummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I've talked to nurses uh, in the field and they warn me, they tell me, if you have anybody going into the nursing profession, make sure they don't wind up in a mental hospital or working with patients who are depressed because after 20 years, they wind up be becoming a, a resident of that, that facility because right, right. they just can't handle it. You're around it all the time. It is depressing. And if you have a depression issue, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with depressing people. <laughs> um, you know, my, I, I completely understand uh, where you're coming from because my mother uh, had what they called bipolar depression at the time. They didn't label it that in the beginning. They were constantly changing what it was and right. using experimental medication. Uh, and knock on wood, I thank God, I, I've only been depressed once in my life. Uh, you know, after my, my divorce, you know, I wasn't really handling life the way I usually do. But I find that um, humor is our survival mechanism. Would you yeah. say that that's what it, it was for you? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, and my family too, very funny. Like I'm not really the standout funny person of my family. Um, it was yeah. kind of a shock to everybody when I was like, um, I'm doing stand-up comedy now <laughs> and I kind of want to pursue this and see where it goes. Um, everybody was kind of like, what? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I get it. But, um, my family luckily is always been very supportive. I didn't really have that backlash from my family that a lot of comics have they were always worried because nobody really in my family pursued an art as a career and they mm -hmm. everybody knows that it's kind of like a you know a parent's worst nightmare that your kid becomes <laughs> an artist because if the failure rate is so much higher than the success rate yeah um 
but uh, but I do. My family is support. They were supportive. They are supportive. Uh, I can't imagine it was always easy for them when I was struggling so hard and the times where I was really depressed and the pandemic really crushed me. I was uh, I literally I lost everything. You know, like I lost all my money. I thought uh, it was the first time I really had to borrow money from my parents as an adult. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was going to lose my apartment. I was like, it was not, I was in a, it just shed, it just sent me down a bad, uh, sent me down a bad path fast. Um, <laughs> I was also in a, because I was working part-time for this computing company. So unlike a lot of my comedian friends who were out of work altogether, so they were getting all these checks from the government and actually making more money than they did as, as comedians, ironically. Um, but because <laughs> I had this part-time job, the government was denying me any assistance. So I'm making like $300 a week I living in Queens, living in New York. And I was like, I can't survive. Like nobody could survive off of this. No, um, they can't. So it, uh, the, the pandemic was a really rough time. <laughs> I, um, I don't miss it. You know, our government is really out of touch with reality because if you yes. die, social security will give you a stipend for the burial but they're using 1912 numbers. I don't know if you know that. You'll get like $275. And when you tell them, you know, the cost of living has gone up, you know, $300 isn't going to help. <laughs> you know, they, they really don't get it. It's sort of like, wow, you guys are really out of touch. Um, you said in one of your blogs, you said your dad was a huge influence on, on your uh, comedy as well. He's a funny guy. Oh yeah, my dad's hilarious. Just like extremely, um, also just dry wit, kind of like a forever prankster. Like things he used to do, just like as a goof. Like he used to, like purposely put like a like at a party or something like 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 a piece of spinach in his tooth and like go around and talk to people and smile, just like wait to see who's gonna say something. Um, <laughs> and he also like I don't know. He just will make up like these facts and stuff like and people just believe them like because he just says it with confidence like one of his big jokes that he does he's a twin my dad is a twin sister and um he talks about remembering his birth and like the doctor <laughs> smoking a cigarette and people are people will be like oh my god really and they're like we'll just be like no not really <laughs> nobody remembers their birth <laughs> so he's just kind of always a jokester like that um so definitely a lot of my sense of humor comes from him uh, i like your dad already my, da <laughs> my dad and i had trouble connecting because my dad had to script a joke like like he had yeah. to tell a joke he wasn't naturally funny and uh my dad was uh emotionally unavailable and angry a lot so i learned to diffuse him quickly with my wit and banter and that's where my comedy came from actually um and you and i have something in common i was deathly shy as a kid holy mm -hmm. moly and, and i hear that a lot you know you hear about people who were deathly shy who wound up in these professions where they're on stage you know like john stossel was a, a really bad stutterer and mm -hmm. uh so now he you know look what he does for a living and yeah. uh would you what what was it that that i mean i know what drives you you like you had to to do this to overcome that that shyness but what what was it in you that said hey i i'm i'm gonna conquer this i guess what's i feel like it really came to i was a really i was a runt growing up like i'm so small but i was i was an extremely late bloomer which runs in my mom's side of the family Mm -hmm. um to the point where i grew like four inches in my 20s it was kind of insane like nobody does that yeah. um so i was i was unusually small scrawny um little kid and i was kind of a tomboy growing up so uh and i was athletic I played sports i hung out with all the boys um but i had a, i had a complex like a run complex. i always had to like prove myself that mm -hmm. you know i wasn't just this um skinny little kid and I liked doing these, uh, you know, extreme sports and running my adrenaline up. So uh, I felt like I always kind of had felt like I had something to prove in a way yeah. in that regard. Like I didn't want to ever come off as uh, weak. Um, but uh, I also I most comedians are introverts. That's also surprises people not in comedy. I'm like, no, most of us are the people in the party hiding in the corner, making under our breath wise ass comments to one person. Like <laughs> we're not usually yeah. the person like who like is the center of attention. Um, it's just not, we really like attention more in the controlled environment. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with it was like that kind of dare mentality that was like, don't, you know, just don't um, don't let fear dictate your life. Um, and I think that really had a lot to do with it. I love what you said. Don't let fear dictate your life. So let's go to that very first time you did stand up. Did you take a class or did you just write a bunch of stuff and get up on stage? Let's paint the picture. I want to hear because my first time. My heart was beating a thousand miles a minute. And I think I did 30 impersonations in five minutes, which is not good. There was no laughter. So let's paint, let's paint that picture. That first time you went on stage, what happened? I um I did not take a class, which maybe was not the best um plan of action. But so I was 20, I was still in college. I was like, I'm gonna try this. I did a bringer show, and for people listening yeah. who don't know what that is. A bringer show is a very common thing um, when you're starting out. You have to bring X amount of people for X amount of minutes on stage. And um, there are a lot of bringer shows that are really bad. Um, they are run by sketchy comics who take advantage. But they're, I don't slam the bringer. Well, some people are like really against the bringer um, like model, but I'm not against it because it kind of is a good lesson in comedy in general because the way to make money from comedy is to be a draw. Uh, so ultimately you want to build an audience and draw your own audience. So mm -hmm. really the whole business is a bringer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but there are, there are shitty people who run bringers take advantage. I just happened to get lucky and like fell into people who ran pretty good bringers, um, which literally was a totally, I had no idea what I was doing. So yeah. I did a bringer at, at Stand Up New York, and I only told the exact amount of people that I needed to go on stage. I told my brother went, but nobody else in my family, every all my friends who went were instructed not to tell the rest of my family. Um, and I had some friends go, and um, I actually had a very good first time experience. I, I got laughs. Um, I did well. And Thankfully, because if I had bombed, I don't know that I ever would have went back on stage again. Um, I got like that little rush and I was like, oh, you know, maybe this is something that I, I can do that I would be good at if I did it more. Um, but unlike a lot of new comics, I I wasn't I didn't think I had any shot at a career in it. I always looked at I watched a lot of stand up comedy um, and I just looked at those guys as like just geniuses. You know, I was like, oh, this is not not something I didn't have that ego going into it that I was like, oh, no, I'm going to, you know, be mm -hmm. on the Tonight Show in like a few years or whatever. I was just like, uh, I don't know. I want to try this and uh, see where it goes. I didn't really have any expectations. Wow. Uh, when I started, I, I didn't realize what was going on, but I was doing, uh, bringer shows with headliners who, you know, would make the draw better. Um, yeah. but, uh, I was on stage with Jim Gaffigan and Tom Shalhoub. I mean, this oh, is, this is like bizarre. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, Tom, I had him do a couple of my shows because you eventually wind up producing a couple of your own shows right, and make right. a little money and stuff. So it was at um, the New York Comedy Club. I had Tom Shalhoub as the headliner. And that was back when he was doing sort of like this mating documentary. We'd play a video, uh, like a cassette, and then mouth the words on stage like, there you see the North American male you know, trying <laughs> to get a woman. Um, and it brought the house down. But People don't realize when you are starting out, it really is. Um, you can bitch about it, but it's the way it is. You just got to bring people. I was lucky enough. I took a class at Stand Up New York uh, with Tim Davis, and uh, my first set was okay. I mean, I my heart was pounding a mile a minute, but um, I came back in. I worked at it. I kept doing bringer shows, and I three months later, Tim saw me. He managed uh, Stand Up New York, and he goes, oh, my God, that was great. You've gotten so much better. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, okay, all right, let's keep going. Uh, and eventually, um, Lisa Lampanelli saw me one night. And she goes, hey, you're going to drive me to gigs because <laughs> I had a car in the city. Mm -hmm. And so I used to open for Lisa Lampanelli. Uh, I opened for Tom Rhodes. And uh, let's let's talk about that. When you start to really feel like you're becoming a maybe a middle success. Did that start to happen with you where people started to notice what you were doing and just kind of went, hey, uh, I like what you're doing. We're doing a show next week or something like that. 
Yes, absolutely. And kind of, um, it's kind of like what you said about realizing that you're getting better. Um, and I'm probably the best way I could use the analogy that is with sports. Um, and, uh, and academics too, you know, uh, I was a really good student, uh, but I had to study hard for it. Um, and I played sports. So it was like, you know, of some of the, my early mentors were like, it, you have to do a ton of open mics and that's the gym you're going, you're doing, you're doing okay. your reps. And, um, I could slowly, but surely notice myself getting better. And then also having comedians that I admired being like, oh, you're getting better. Um, and then eventually, you know, people asking you to do your shows or once again, I also had a car. So people asking you to open for them and such. Um, so when you feel your progress and when other people notice it, um, you know, that, that, that feels really good. And then you're like, okay, like this is, this is a slow, um, you know, this is going to be a slow path, but, um, it's, you know, very, extremely gratifying when, um when you're do- and you feel it too when you go on stage you have more confidence your bits get honed and you you start doing better you start getting more laughs and stuff uh cuz even when i first started doing like quote unquote real shows um i mean i was not good <laughs> <laughs> cuz i was very much a joke writer i always had pretty good jokes cuz i i understood joke writing real just naturally from my mm-hmm. family and from watching a ton of um stand up and from also uh being a good writer from the start i was always a good joker but i went on stage like a robot and just told one-liners i had really had no natural performing ability yeah you you went to the stephen wright school of yes <laughs> of, of a great stephen wright story um if you want me to um yes please <laughs> uh divert a little bit i opened for louis ck some years ago and um, I'm in the green room and Louis comes back uh, with Stephen Wright and uh, Louis is like, hey, you know, and I had met Louis before. So I think he remembered me. And he's like, this is my friend, Stephen, as if like I didn't know who it was, you know, and right. Like, Shit, like, see, and I'm like more <laughs> impressed and like worried about Stephen Wright being there than Louis C.K. But like both of them are like, you know, just huge people in comedy. Yeah. And I'm like, like sitting there in my notebook and, I'm, and Stephen Wright's kind of a germaphobe. He doesn't want you like shaking anybody's hand or anything. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and I had gone up and done my set and him and Louie were just going over um, their notes or whatever. And I come off, had amazing set because because anytime you open for somebody, you know, like Louis C.K. or you open for like Colin Quinn, Gary Goldman, anybody who has a really good comedy audience that's savvy, it's like, it's easy, you know? Yeah. It's like, you're just, they're ready for jokes. They like smart jokes. So I had really great sets. So I'm really proud of myself. And then Louis goes on stage. It does like an hour, whatever he does. And uh, and Stephen went out and watched Louis set. And then when he comes back, we had the second show, and he's like, "Oh, I'm going to watch your set for the second show." And I'm like, "Okay, cool." Like, oh my god, Stephen, I got my set. Um, so I go on stage again, do my thing, and then I come back, and I'm in the green room, and Stephen Wright comes back to the green room, and he's like, "You have really good jokes," and I'm like, "Oh, thank you. Like, I really appreciate that." And then he starts rattling off my punchlines back to me. And he's like, oh, this is a great joke. And then he's like, oh, this one, this is a great joke. And I was just like floating off of my chair at this point, you know? <laughs> and oh I was God. like, wow, Stephen Wright, arguably the best joke writer ever is sitting here and complimenting me. And um, that moment kept me going in many times where I just wanted to quit when things weren't going good. And I was like, I'm quitting. I fucking hate this. Uh, <laughs> it's not working out. And then I'll be like, remember when Stephen Wright was like, you're a really great joke writer. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> you need to frame that on your wall. Remember when Stephen Wright, like, like do it in like really funny, <laughs> do it in comic sans. So it'll get t- attract your attention. Ah, I hate that typeface, but he complimented me. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like Albert Einstein telling you your math is incredible. Right, right. Is that with something else? Yeah, so good. Um, so yeah, that was one of those like really special moments that you're like, oh damn, that was so cool. <laughs> I could t- I could see him talking to you like that. Hey, I really like that joke. You, you know, <laughs> sort of like real dry. <laughs> oh my god. Well, we're gonna play a clip of your first debut at uh, Gotham live on stage. 
and uh, you get introduced by Sinbad. So here we go. Roll the tape. This is her TV debut, Lori Palmateri. Thank you guys thank you so much i recently moved to queens yeah when i moved there my mom was really worried about me she was like Lori, make sure you take all your gold jewelry and hide it just in case somebody breaks in and steals it and sells it for drug money i was like don't worry mom I sold all my gold jewelry for drug money years ago I've been drinking a lot of wine lately. I don't even really like wine that much. It's my least favorite of the alcohol family. I'm a beer person. I love beer. Yeah. But I feel like I can't drink beer every day because then I'll get a gut. I feel like I can't drink liquor every day because then I'll be an alcoholic. But I feel like if I drink wine every day, then I'm just a sad white woman. <laughs> not so bad we have a book club we watch a lot of Jennifer Aniston movies and I know it's really cliche to say that the next generation is gonna be the worst generation but I am pretty sure that the next generation is gonna be the worst generation and I'm not defending people my age either we are a shitty group we are not bringing that much to the table. My entire generation is like, we all have HPV. <laughs> That's our contribution. But the next generation, they're gonna be worse. There was a 14 year old girl, she found an arm and instead of calling the police, she tweeted a picture of it. Her mom saw the tweet, called her up and she was like, hey, you need to call the police about this body part that you found. Which I'm pretty sure is a conversation she never thought she had to have. Because what kind of a kid finds an arm and goes, ooh, selfie. She's like, hashtag zombie arm. She's holding the arm, high-fiving it. She's using it to get an extended selfie. She's like... <laughs> Thank you, guys. My name is Lori Palminteri. That was good. How how that feel that first time on TV? Because I know your heart's going, boom, 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 you know? Oh, yeah. I was so nervous. I was incredibly nervous. Um, I was... Yeah, exactly. My heart racing. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then... Um, you know, Sinbad, I only talked to him briefly backstage, but he's so nice. He's such yeah. a good guy. Like, um, so the, obviously he's like a legend. Uh, so that was so cool. And, you know, he gives me a big hug going on stage, which was awesome. I, then I do my jokes. And afterward, once again, he was like just super complimentary to me. Um, so it was, as soon as my first joke like hit really well, I relaxed. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is, um, uh, and I, that was, you know, that was also such a highlight. Uh, that's when I really thought my career was going to like pop at that point. It didn't really. <laughs> I went through another like lull after that. But at that, I was like, oh, this is it. Like it's taking off from yeah. here. Uh, um, but it was extremely good experience. It's a really fun, it was a really fun show. Um, the Mazzillis who own Gotham Comedy Club are, are really, great guys um yeah. and they, chris, they do a yeah. good job yeah chris Mazzilli. um <laughs> you're cracking me up here comedy is like that folks it's not like a steady ramp you know up to oh, success yeah, yeah. it's sort of like uh waiting around for christmas dinner for a whole year you know and you're eating mcdonald's a whole year and then you <laughs> finally get that beautiful christmas dinner um but yeah, TV is a whole different animal because you do your setup to the audience and your punchline to the camera. And so it, 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 you're trying to coordinate all this stuff and the moving parts and you realize people are watching at home and all this other stuff. The first time I did, I had to do an hour long um, television show up in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a million people were watching. <laughs> and I was like, um, <laughs> and that was and, uh, to fill an hour. And we didn't have a laugh track. I had a small audience and it's like, 
the the audience feeds the performance. <laughs> Am I right? You know, because it's yeah, like if, you, if, if you're telling a joke and it it hits higher than it's ever, you come back with some more witty comments. Um, but somebody told me something once, and I want to see, I want to confirm it with you. And they said sometimes your best punchlines will be written on stage because you're in the moment and your snarky attitude is firing in all cylinders. And after a couple of years, you get really comfortable. So you know you're delivering your material, but there's another part of your brain operating, looking for opportunities. And you hit that punchline. And then all of a sudden you say something sort of as a backhanded remark, and it gets a huge laugh. Has that happened to you many, many times? Or is that, that's, can you say that's true even? I have mixed feelings about this and um, it does happen for sure. Like sometimes I'll be on stage and it's usually more with tags and I'll tag something and I'll be like, Oh wow. That I can't believe I never thought of that sooner. Um, And there it is. And it works. Um, Some comedians are much more gifted riffers. I, I am more of a writer where it's like my, Mm -hmm. my stuff is precise. I have it written out word for word what I'm going to say. And as far as writing on stage, quote unquote, I think that this is a lazy excuse for some comedians because it does work sometimes. Certainly some people are better at it than others, but all the best comics, Louis C.K., Colin Quinn, Bill Burr, all of these guys sit down and write. And sometimes I hear comics who are like, well, I can't sit down and write. I write on stage. And I'm like, well, you are delaying your success. Yeah. So certainly um, you do have these moments. And obviously the more you get on stage, the better you're going to get. But if that's the only way you write, quote unquote, is by being on stage, it's it, you're lazy to me. You're, you're lazy and you're not going to become great. I agree with you on that one. I used to write and write and write, but uh, I would reserve one or two punchlines that would happen by accident. Sometimes I go, Oh, I got to put that in. But I noticed this from day one, the best comedians and the ones who soared to the top, they didn't do crowd work. Mm -hmm. They immediately wrote like Jim Gaffigan was always in the corner, taking notes, writing, doing that. Uh, Ted Alexandro, uh, same thing, sit at the bar up at the comic strip. He would just sit there and he'd go over his notes like this. And then um, I noticed that even with Tom Shalhoub just, and they kept to themselves a lot of times. And that is the key to success in comedy because what they're watching is the bits that you can do. What are, how's your mind work? How do you work the, that, that joke? Um, what are the levels within the joke? You know, cause sometimes you can tell a joke and you have three punchlines right afterwards. And that takes time to get a role going like that. And I've always admired that. Gaff- in- Gaffigan is the perfect example of somebody yeah. who just tags the hell out of his joke. So he, he gets a punch, a setup and a punch, and then he rings it out and yeah. he just like tag, 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 tag. Yep. It's un- it's unbelievable. Jim is the only comedian I know. There might be one or two others out there, but he's the only person I know who can do 10 to 15 minutes on one subject. Yes. <laughs> I've never seen another comedian do that. Most of them do like a five minute. You know, but he did a set on bacon once and I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, it's on and on bacon. He's doing that <laughs> voice he does where he's doing the audience uh, too. This guy's a jerk, you know, um, which I love. Uh, I I also have a really funny story with Jim Gaffigan. As you know, he doesn't talk to anybody when he comes into the clubs. He doesn't say hi or anything. Um, I was stuck in traffic with my wife in Times Square and he walks through the traffic jam and he walks by and he looks up and then he does a double take. And I roll down the window and I go, Jim, he goes, what are you doing here? Because you know, <laughs> he had seen me like a couple of nights before at Stand of New York. So it was the funniest damn moment, you know, just one of those. Wally Collins, too. I was up in Harlem and he, st- and he looks in and he goes, what are you doing up here? <laughs> so, uh, that was funny. And he didn't know my wife was black. So it's sort of like, huh? You know, he looks at me and he looks back and what are you doing here? He's like, oh, we're going to see, you know, friends. <laughs> you know, there's moments in New York City where it's almost like a really small. Right, um, right. Is it a New small York, town. You're going to run into people that you just oh my, do. <laughs> oh, my God. It's funny. Joe DeVito, I drive all the way out to Jersey. I walk out the door and he's the MC for the night or the headliner. And I'm like, hey, what's up, man? He's like, hey, yeah, what's up? You know, we're like, this is the funniest small world ever uh, comedy. 
getting back to Stephen Wright, I was doing a gig out in um, Jersey, and uh, uh, I don't know if you know who Bob Gonzo is, but he used to drive Stephen Wright around all the time, and he would just tell me, "Oh, I got to drive Steve up to this gig," and he says, "I hope it turns out okay." And we're like, "But you're Stephen Wright," and he goes, "No." You don't understand. Maybe eight percent of the population gets my humor. Yes, <laughs> it's like that guy not only knows his set, he knows his audience. You know, which is important. Well, Stephen Wright also is maybe the only comedian who probably plays better on TV than live. Almost yeah. everybody plays better live than on TV, and and Stephen Wright might be the only exception to that rule. Where like he's just so perfect for television. You know, you know who else is kind of was like that, and I got a chance to meet him, uh, Mitch Hedberg. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, because he also that those type of one liners. He wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, my girlfriend and I crack up constantly. I send her little snippets from his stuff. The other one uh, that I sent her yesterday was uh, he goes. What do sesame seeds turn into? We don't know because we never give them a chance. Because <laughs> they're on every, they're on the buns, they're on everything. I'm like, this guy is sitting around, um, probably smoking a blunt and thinking of these ideas and going, wait, this could truly be funny. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, that, that's incredible. Uh, I want to ask you a, a little bit about uh, women in comedy. You know, uh, you seem to be taking it, you know, the bull by the horns and taking it to this other level. And I, I love your style of comedy. You know, I don't know if it's a mixture of your being raised like a boomer and also being a millennial, <laughs> uh, being a surfer, being somebody who has a very unique take on the world. I've always admired your sort of snarky, um, which is a substitute for smart ass, uh, kind of way of, of looking at the world. Um, and uh, let's talk about that. Women in comedy, you know, we we recently saw Roseanne Barr start making a comeback after being canceled. Um, we're scheduled to have Rita Rudner on the show uh, at some point. Uh, but uh, like Gina Brion is a good friend of mine. Uh, we, yes, we used to have a, a writing circle when we were doing working together. Um, it, I just see the women are now coming into their own in a different way than, let's say, uh, from back in the day when I was a kid, you know, the women comics had a very specific set. They bitched about their husbands. Uh, you know, they talked about not wanting sex. You know, there was this, this sort of package deal and you are breaking the mold. And I love that about you. What, what drives you? Is it, is it to be better at this craft or what is it? Um, I kind of resent when people are like, oh, it's harder being a woman in comedy um, because it's just hard for everybody. Um, it's mm -hmm. an extremely difficult thing to pursue. Um, and the people who are most discriminated against in comedy are people who are older. Um, mm -hmm. They so want young people. But as you know, or we both know, it takes so long to get good at comedy. I mean, it takes decades. Like, look at the yeah. people who are really great. Like, you know, they're they're older because they've been doing comedy 20 years. Yeah. Um, and that's where being a woman, I think, is at your art at different disadvantage because the industry does want their women younger than their men. Um, and that's not only true for comedy, it's true for anything in the art, the arts or really or performing arts. Mm -hmm. Um I personally never like dirty comedy is not my thing. And obviously you see a giant, uh, you know, there were a huge surge of dirty comedians, um, female comics, Amy Schumer, Nikki Glaser, some of these people who just like really talk about sex a lot. And I talk about sex a little bit, but I'm, I'm not a filthy comic. I just, it's right. not, it's not who I am. And I'm not, I'm not against it. Certainly it's obviously has its place. Um, so, and also I talk a lot about dating and my failures um, in romance but I also never wanted to be that female comic that's like, oh, woe is me. Like, it's so, it's like, I'm like, no, I blame myself a lot and I'm self depreciating. I'm like, no, I know that I'm half the problem here. Um, I can't really like fully blame men. Um, I can sometimes blame men for being pieces of shit. Trust me, I got stories. But sometimes I'm like, oh, no, I've been the problem too. Sometimes I, I, I have strong self awareness. Um, so, I never, I just never wanted to 
be kind of labeled as a female comic. I just wanted right. to be a comic. I really resented any host who brought me on stage as like the next comedian coming on stage. <laughs> I always wanted to like throw a drink <laughs> in their head and just yeah. be like, don't do that. Like, just yeah. say the next comic. Like, I'm not, oh, this person has a vagina and they tell jokes and everybody's supposed <laughs> to be like awed about this. Um <laughs> But there is a stigma that women aren't funny still, yeah. which is wild to me that people still think this. Um, and honestly, I get it more from women than men um, that women aren't funny, and huh. um, which is really interesting. I've had so many, I hundreds of times after shows, women coming up to me and saying how funny I was and how they don't think women are funny. And I'm just like, what? Like, I understand you're complimenting me, but like, just that attitude is like you and you feel it too. You feel it when you're going on stage, when you walk on stage and some people just like immediately cross their arms and they're like, oh, this person's not going to be funny. Like, And that's an extra challenge to bypass as opposed to like a dude who quote unquote looks like a comic, whatever that even means to people, yeah. you know? Um, so, we, and this is more of a New York or Northeast attitude in general where people are like, it's almost like a challenge. They're like, make me laugh, funny woman. It's like, dude, you, you came to a comedy club. Like, uh, yeah. why, why, why does this have to be an arm wrestle? Like, just uh, listen to what I have to say. Um, so you could feel that sometimes. And also something I tell younger female comics or newer female comics, not necessarily younger, um, especially ones that you know, maybe are uh, very attractive and they have good figures and stuff. Cause I'll see some newer female comics go on stage and they have a low cut blouse on or something like that. And I'll be like, look, you know, you're beautiful. Like, let's not, let's, let's put that aside for the second, but it's distracting and you yeah. don't want to distract your audience um, until you're good enough to you know sell that like somebody like Rachel Feinstein is is it very beautiful and she usually dresses really feminine on stage yeah but Rachel is a solid pro she's been doing it for a long time um and it's like you can't it's almost like with tattoo I would say the same thing about tattoos like if you have a ton of tattoos on or if you go on stage with a graphic tee that has a picture on it and some words suddenly the audience is like reading your t-shirt or they're right. examining the tattoos on your arm and trying to see what they mean. So if you're going up there with your, your cleavage showing, the guys are looking at your boobs. If they have girlfriends or wives with them, they're looking at their husband or boyfriend and they're pissed that they're like checking you out. And then they're pissed at you for it because their husband is, you know, looking at your boobs, not your fault. But like, so it's like, no, don't, don't do that off the bat. Right. <laughs> not how you want to win over this audience immediately until you are you know a pretty solid comic yeah yeah i've i've often wondered i think it started with jerry lewis he was the guy who sat there and said women aren't funny or whatever yeah. and but look at the amount of women who've been super successful uh paula poundstone i love watching her oh, and great. absolutely great you know it, it reminds me of um you know the marvel comics when they're talking about you know um uh, you know, black superheroes. We need more black superheroes. And it's like, I agree, but I was there opening day when Blade was in the theater. Where were you, man? You know, it's like, uh, and it's the same with women comedians. It's like, they're there, but you're not, it doesn't seem like you're focusing on them. And there um, are also, there are less women in comedy though, in general, yeah. there just are. Um, I view oftentimes the only girl in a green room, only girl on a show. Mm. And I, I read this article years ago and I wish that I saved it. It wasn't about comedy specifically. It was about how men are more persistent career-wise than women. Um, right. And the reason being is school often comes easier to girls because they're better at focusing than guys. Because guys, at least start thinking that there's testosterone and they're more fidgety <laughs> or whatever. Squirrel. So, yeah. And <laughs> are far exceeding men in college. Like it's not even close. Mm -hmm. um, but men are still more successful in the workforce. And some of this has to do with family stuff, right? You have, you have kids and you're like, you know what? This is more important to me than my career is my kids. So you, you know, that your yeah. career becomes your back burner. And there's absolutely a hundred percent nothing wrong with that. Um, in a way, I think that is a very good thing. Um, 
But as far as the persistence things go, and the same with dating, like, you know, guys are just more likely to keep asking, keep asking and getting rejected, getting rejected. Whereas a woman, when they get rejected, they're less likely to keep going. They just go, ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of because we had more early success in school. Whereas guys, you know, they'll get B's and C's and they have to keep being told to try harder or when yeah. it comes to dating, they have to keep trying harder. So women are more likely to cave to reject to rejection. And I think that there, that is extremely valid. And I think that's extremely valid in comedy, which is mostly rejection. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know how to curb that myself, but I think that um, I think that there really is something to that. You know, as you're talking, I keep thinking, you know, men are naturally hunters, not all men, but, you know, I'm, right, I'm saying right. that's sort of this aggressive, I'm going to kill, I'm going to do this. And we are encouraged, maybe through society or just, you know, our peer group uh, to be a smart ass. You know, I was always rewarded for, you know, having great punchlines in high school. You know, I'm, I'm in the drumline and I'm making, you know, smart ass comments. Whereas when a woman does it, it's so rare and I find it refreshing, but some people are like, wow, how dare she, you know, who does she <laughs> think she is? You know, it's like the 1800s and we're gunslingers are like, you know, we need to lynch her, you know, or something. Cause she has an opinion, you know, she has this point of view. Um, and I've always liked a, a woman with a really great sense of humor. We had uh, this one girl who her name is Lauren at work and she was such a smart ass that we were just like, Lauren, come sit with us. You know, we, cause she was just <laughs> so great. She would make smart ass comments about her husband. Uh, she would just, she would always be a little snarky and she was, um, she was also Korean and very stunning and beautiful. So this, this juxtaposed with it, like you were talking about being attractive and, and set, telling the jokes, it was just um, incredibly refreshing. And I don't know why more people don't see that, you know, when it happens, it's a wonderful moment where um, I think a woman is embracing her masculine energy. That's what it right, is. Right. And I, a lot of people would argue that I have a lot of masculine energy. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, most of my friends then and now have always been guys. I always kind of like had, um, I felt always kind of felt like Elaine Pennis and Seinfeld in the sense yeah. where like, I was just always kind of one of the guys and that's how they're treated. And they, <laughs> they were brutal to me. They still are brutal to me in the sense that they just quit me all the time. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> well, my girlfriend's the same way. She's She works on the car, okay? And I sit back and cook, you know? Uh, and I have a black belt in, in uh, jujitsu, so I'm comfortable with my masculinity, but... The funniest thing is, I don't know if this is a our karma as, as funny people, comedians, whatever, but I will crack a joke and she'll just look at me like, I don't get it. You know, and I have to explain <laughs> the joke every time. It's like, I swear to God, it's my karma. <laughs> it, it's the funniest thing. <laughs> so who, who have you opened for that you really, really um, admire and you just are like, I can't believe I'm opening. You were, you were talking about Louis C.K. and meeting... Uh, Stephen Wright, but who else have you opened for? Colin Quinn is probably the top person. I think Colin is at a George Carlin level um, yeah. right now. He's completely brilliant. He's a new one-man show off-Broadway, Small Talk. It's amazing, and I recommend anybody to see it or go watch one of his previous ones, Long Story Short or New York Story, Unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. They're all totally brilliant. He's um and he's the nicest guy ever. And I, I call him sometimes for advice or when I'm working on a screenplay and ask him questions about stuff. And uh, I mean, Collins will is beloved in the, in the comedy. Yeah. Community, well, he's a legend. He's a legend at this yeah. point because he's up there with Chris Rock and Robin Williams oh, yeah. as far as the longevity and humor. I don't get to see him enough. We saw him more when he was doing that show um, every night, that politically uh, incorrect or whatever. Um, that, that comedy show that he was on. Uh, but he, uh, this is something I've noticed. Um, New York comedians have a very different edginess punchline and the way they view the world. It's a little, it's almost like karate <laughs> compared to Aikido, uh, where they strike hard with the punchline. Um, and when you see a West coast comic, you just kind of go, Oh, they're, they're from the West coast, you know, uh, uh, Dane cook. And I like Dane cook. Okay. I think he's very funny, 
but all his stuff was like, um, you know, this is what a snake does when a snake does what a snake does. And then he acts like a snake. And I was like, how is that funny? You know, whereas Colin Quinn will come out and go, you know, and he'll just lay it on the line. I'm from Brooklyn. We don't mess with that crap, you know, and you're just like, wow, big difference. Have you noticed that uh, as well? Yes, absolutely. And I just think some of that has the Northeast in general, um, we're just more sarcastic and biting. And not, not, I don't even just mean comedy. I mean, just the regular yeah. People. Um, I dated a guy who is not from the Northeast and he like just loved how like mean we were all the time. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, like, man, that's a misinterpretation so to each other. That's a like, mi- ah, I, don't, I don't know. Like this is how I was raised. <laughs> that, that's a total misrepresentation. My girlfriend's from California. And when we were hanging out, we were in Vegas and I would get pissed and I go, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? Especially if a guy's treating his girl wrong, you know, they're getting an argument in the street. Um, and she's like, you need to calm down. I said, <laughs> like hell, I lived in New York City for 35 years. I ain't calming down. Okay. Right, right. And no BS. I remember going to, this was the one thing I was afraid I wouldn't find in, in Las Vegas. And that was a nice Jewish deli. Well, I found one a mile from my house, Weiss's Deli. So I get down there one day and I'm standing out in the courtyard waiting for my food. And I look out and there's like three or four guys standing there. They look like they might've been Italian, but you could tell immediately they were New Yorkers. And here's the conversation. Hey, that, that fucking car is nice, man. Yeah. But the parking place, look, he got a sweet ass parking spot, you know, <laughs> and they're going on for five minutes about the car, the parking spot. And every other word is the F bomb. Okay. And I'm just like rolling. I'm like, you're from New York, aren't you? You go, how do you know that? You know, like they're on the witness protection program and I'm not supposed to know. You know, and you just can spot New Yorkers right away because they don't put up with crap. They're right in your face. And uh, there's a, there's an expression running around right now. And I, I do believe it. The difference between West Coast and East Coast, uh, as far as people go, is a West Coast person will be kind to your face, but won't help you. Whereas a New Yorker will be, you know, kind of nasty, but they'll help you down the stairs with your groceries and your baby. <laughs> and and I've seen that a hundred times in New York City. A guy's on the phone doing a major deal in a suit and a girl's waiting there with the carriage to take her son down the stairs. He'll just grab it, stay on the phone call and walk down with her. And she's like, Thank you so much. He's like, hey, no problem. All right. right so right. Yeah, that's New York. Uh, the difference between the two. Uh, but let me ask you, let's switch gears a little bit. Now, you've written for uh, the very popular now, Greg Gutfield show. Uh, but what other shows have you written for? Uh, because I find this fascinating, um, the, the field of the writing part of stand-up comedy. Um, right. So I, I write jokes for Gutfeld right now, which, um, yeah, it's becoming really wildly successful, which is which is great. Um, but... I write for um, United Comedy Nations, which is um, a radio service, um, and we, um, you know, we write bits, or I write. I also do the radio prep, and then a bunch of FM stations across the country subscribe to it, and they use our material. Um, so I was freelancing for them for a couple of years, and then they actually hired me at the end of 2020 to do their radio prep, which saved me from my. Um, almost living out of my car situation. <laughs> um, so that was like such a lifesaver. So that's how still how I make most of my money because I'm freelance with Godfeld at the moment. Um, so I write for, I do the radio prep, which is a lot of finding stories and editing them and stuff. But then I write some jokes for them yeah. as well. Um, and writing jobs, as you know, are few and far between. They're extremely hard to come by. Um, and the writing gigs I have now are just, you know, I got them because somebody had recommended me. Yeah. Um, and also I wrote all the time. So I kind of, and I write screenplays too. I, I've pitched some screenplays, some shows and, and movies, but, uh, nothing has sold yet, but that's still, that's still my dream as we had mentioned before. So I still yeah. work on that all the time, which is its own thing. That's extremely difficult. Um, but, um, yeah, you just, I mean, anybody who wants to be a writer, I tell them, I go, do you, you have to write all the time? Like you just have to yeah. be constantly writing. Um, well, I think it, it has to do with the discipline of writing. That's number one. And number two, uh, when I started writing, really taking it seriously, I started taking a notepad and carrying it around all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. You know, because sometimes the, the funniest thing will happen at the cash register or you're, you know, you go to get out of your car or whatever, you know, there, there are these real life moments that if you, you know, and this is the difference between a professional and an amateur and you, you, you want to be a professional comedian, a professional writer, start writing your stuff down. And I've learned that every nuance, every piece of my life now um, can be something, uh, a business story, a comedy lesson, uh, fall down and get back up kind of story. Do you find that as well, that you, you start paying attention differently? Absolutely. I would, I have, and even to take it a step further, the care on a, a, a notebook, which I do, I bought um, years ago, these soap crayons that are in my shower yeah. so yeah. like if i come up with an idea in my shower i write it on my bathroom wall in these soap crayons that are like for children you know and i, I have a rented apartment here in new york and i remember my landlord had to come fix something in my bathroom like my bathroom sink or something wasn't wasn't draining and i had all these notes <laughs> on my bathroom wall in this soap crown and i had forgotten about him and then I was like at work or something. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to my apartment today. They're just going to, because it's not like full blown sentences, you know, it's just it's like just weird stuff. Words. Like yeah. So I remember, and it just, I was like, I just look like the craziest person ever. <laughs> yeah. If they ever um, opened our, your notebook, they'd be 100%, like, 100%. Oh, it's like nuts. This, this person um, needs therapy. But now I, I suffer from something that I call joke brain. And I can't turn it off. It's I'm, I'm constantly looking at it, sometimes inappropriately. So, yeah. like, you know, one of my friends, you know, lost somebody and I just like could not stop making jokes, not about like them dying, but just kind of like about other things. And it was not the right time or right play. I mean, she loves me and knows me, but it was like, because I, I was trying to cheer her up, you know, yeah. it was just like, I can't, this is my, my brain works. Like, I'm just, it's always looking yep. for the joke. It's just like, it, it's, um, it, you know, eventually like, it's just, it's just, you're not, when you're a writer, you are never really off duty in your head, um, yeah. which is sometimes maddening. And I have sleep problems because of it. <laughs> I keep a, I keep, I keep a notepad next to my desk or my bed. And, and sometimes I've gotten up in the middle of the night and just written a whole article just, you know, in an hour or so, just laid out the basics for it. But, oh my God, you, you hit a nail on the head because when I was doing stand-up com comedy, I uh, I would be at a funeral cracking jokes, and somebody yelled at me once. <laughs> They're like, "How dare you! It's inappropriate!" Somebody leaned in and go, "He's a comedian." She goes, "Well, that was quite funny." <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like it was funny before when you were yelling I mean, at me. I, can't, I cannot help it. This is, but it's your coping mechanism too. You know, it's Absolutely. your sword and your shield, and it just becomes. And I know it becomes exhausting sometimes. Some of my friends are like, "All right." stop and i'm like i know i just can't help it i'm sorry <laughs> well i i can tell you it gets better i'm 30 years ahead of you and i basically am like okay you will learn when to bite your tongue you will learn to keep it inside oh that joke's no, just I for my like, inside i think i'm getting worse i think i knew how to bite my tongue and now i feel like i don't care anymore and i'm like oh, i don't care whatever and i'm like i'm almost like an elderly person in a in a in a younger woman's body, right? That's, just like, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. <laughs> oh, okay, boomer. We're gonna tell you. <laughs> Basically, I like, this is who I that, am. That is freaking funny. Yeah, I do, <laughs> I, you do get to a point where I do not care if I insult you. I, I said something to somebody in New York once who did something so stupid in front of me. I didn't know them. And they go, what did you say? And I went right up to their face. I go, you heard me. Don't pretend you don't know. You didn't hear me. And they're like, oh, okay. It's yeah, like, dangerous in New York these days. But you're just, you're just, I'm done. I'm done trying. I'm done with your feelings. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. Like, I, I don't like, you should never really take anything I say that much to heart anyway. Like, well, why do you care what I think also? Like, I, who gives a shit? There you go. Hey, how do we get a hold of you? I know you got shows coming up and you're writing and you're busy, but where do we go uh, to, um, you know, get your schedule and and reach out to you? Sure. Actually, I probably should change this. My, my, my Twitter is at Lori Palmentary. My, my Instagram is at go see Lori. And I did that because people oftentimes can't spell my last name. Me um, too. But uh, yeah, you know, your name, forget it. I think your name's worth <laughs> mine. Yeah. <laughs> You got some tricky things in there. It's a, uh, uh, it's very, it's like Smith in Hungary. I hate to tell you. It's very <laughs> common. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then my website, lauriepalmentary.com, um, and, you know, I post shows on there. I, I write a blog weekly, which, um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's kind of sad, kind of just depending on whatever I'm feeling really at it's that time. Um, and I'm posting jokes all the time on Twitter and Facebook, uh, Instagram. So, um, awesome. yeah, check it out. Drop me a line. If you, if anybody feels like it. Excellent. Well, do you, do you have a few minutes? Uh, I like to do a lightning round where I ask some, uh, questions. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. All right. We've we've established all these things. You're a tomboy. You like sports. Um, you like to kick ass and take names. Is there any moment or thing that you do that you really feel like um, this is embracing the girl in you, really embracing it? Oh, wow. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm not really, I'm not really, sh- I guess only recently I've gotten more into like some more self-care stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting pedicures or massages or facials and stuff. I never really like allowed myself to enjoy some of this before. And now it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. let's go do this kind of things. Like this is like, you need to embrace the self-care stuff. <laughs> um, so that I feel like, and also I not, I'm not good at fashion. I never was, I never will be. Um, but sometimes like my sister-in-law will give me some really nice clothes and then I'll be like, Oh, like I do feel like feminine and sexy in this. And that's kind of nice sometimes. <laughs> there you go. Um, I play opposite when I ask these questions, like I've had some really angry people on and I go, what makes you happy? And like, they're stumped for like an hour, you know, like a half an hour. They don't know what to say, you know? <laughs> um, let me ask you the next question. And that is um, who makes you laugh? Like, like just naturally without, you know, looking up to them or admiring them, who really makes you laugh? Um, like I said, my, both my parents are one of six kids. I have 19 first cousins. It's like this, my my dad's Italian, my mom's Irish, English. Um, so it's this giant family and I have so many aunts, uncles, cousins where we get together and it's like, it's a locker room session. You know, we're just, yeah. that's why green rooms were very natural for me. Cause I just came from this environment where people were just ripping on each other all the time. And um, my, a lot of my friends too, just really this that Northeast, like New York biting attitude where we just, they make, I mean, if you're the only way I'm friends with you, really good close with you anyway, is if you're making me laugh all the time, I'm making you laugh. Yeah. I agree. I'm the same way with some of my friends. They just crack me up. And it's like, I can actually shut up and listen to them and go, oh, that is really funny. Oh, for yeah. sure. I've yeah. used some of their like lines as jokes. Like, oh, I'm writing that down. I'm going to try yeah. that on stage. <laughs> I've done that with audience members. When they yell out a better punchline, I go, could somebody write that down? Because it's <laughs> funnier than them. Yeah. Uh, my third and final question I wanted to ask you is, uh, What's the ultimate dream job for you or dream goal? Um, to write and sell a sitcom or a screenplay. Um, I recently pitched a female-driven action comedy, and then I'm working on another one. And um, I love action comedies in general, and there seems to be a real lack of female-driven ones. Um, and just female uh comedy action stars in general i think probably our best one is melissa mccarthy i think sandra bullock is pretty good too yeah um but oftentimes when we have a female action star they're driven by like this insanely tragic like rape story or something like that um and there's nothing wrong with those either but like i want like where's the female die hard and i don't mean rebooting die hard with a female lead like i hate when they do that when they're like we're going to take this man thing and now we're going to reboot it with a female. It's like, no, we have, let's just make original stories with, with female stars. Um, So um, that would be something that I would love to sell and be a part of. Cause I think that um, there's really a a need for that in Hollywood. Uh, Melissa McCarthy, my favorite movie of her is spy. Uh, It is, it is from beginning to end flawless and i say that rarely about a movie it's when all the jokes fire the action makes sense the plot has a twist i feel like i'm watching james bond with comedy Uh, jason statham is brilliant through the whole movie he's just like 
oh yeah, I killed myself once and brought myself <laughs> back to life, you know. Um, but you have to have Christopher Walken as the catalyst in whatever movie you, you create because we're going to lose him soon. So we need some sort of like, you know, Laurie, you're going to die. <laughs> get out of that. Like, the, yeah, that would be fun. I look forward to you selling that script. I really do. I look forward to seeing your credits in the in the top. <laughs> And uh, thank you, Lori. This has been awesome to have you on Awakened Nation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You're welcome. Um, go kick some ass is all I have to say. Thank you. Uh, hey, everybody, tune in next week. Uh, we're in season five and we've uh, crossed over the 100 episode line. I'm very excited. We have some great guests coming up. Uh, but tune in next week for another extraordinary guest. Once again, thank you, Lori, for being on the show. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.